the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, we will be picking back up in verse 15 and we'll take it through to verse 23. Now if you remember, the theme of the book of Colossians or the epistle or the letter of that Paul writes, Paul the Apostle, to the believers in Colossae is here called the book of Colossians or the epistle of Colossians. And we will see here that the key theme is in verse 18 of chapter 1. And it's the key theme around this letter is the preeminence of Christ or the supremacy of Christ. So our whole focus is we will see in the scriptures today that we will take another little bit of a chunk of chapter 1. It's all about Jesus and the fact that he is supreme or preeminent over everything and anybody else. And once you have that settled in your mind, it is critical for you in your walk with the Lord. Because of the fact that there was disunity in, in the Corinthian church, there are some odds between people and what's going on. The false teachers coming in and having influence and causing people to weaken their faith in who Jesus Christ is. Paul writes a letter to encourage them. Now, if you remember, if you go back, he was then looking at, in the, just verse 13 and verse 14, he had delivered us from the, the power of darkness and conveyed us or enabled us into the kingdom of the Son of His love and in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And we ended that last week in the fact that we have been forgiven, we've been redeemed, we've been purchased, we are set free. We're no longer in bondage, we're free people to live for Christ and do what He's called us to do here and wait with a great anticipation of going home. We're no longer living in darkness. Once you've been born again, you've been converted, you've been transformed, no longer whatever that you were doing in darkness will ever continue. You can't live there anymore in peace. There's no, there's no joy in any of that darkness whatsoever. It drives you to want to get away from it more and more, and you want nothing to do with it. You don't even want to dwell on it. You don't want to be around it. You don't want to be around people who do it as well like you used to. Before, it didn't have a problem living in sin. You had no problem thinking a certain way. You had no problem watching things and listening to things and hanging around people. It, it, matter of fact, it was fun. It was your life, and it was that you thought you had a life. And then you got to know who Jesus Christ is. And then you realized, oh, I really don't have a life, and I'm living in darkness. And you've always known that you had no peace. You knew that you were just struggling. You knew that you just had no joy. You knew that you had this emptiness inside and you could not explain it. And no one could explain it. And you Googled it and you YouTubed it and you read about it. But you just couldn't figure out why I just not settled in my life. And then you heard the word of God. You heard the voice of God. Speak to your heart about who Jesus is and what he's done for you on the cross at Calvary. And then everything came clear. You no longer were in darkness. Now you're in the light. You no longer wandered in life. You had a purpose and a very focused purpose in life. 
You thought this was all there was to life is to, to live this life in this earth and then just die and get buried. And then you realize, no, that's not true. I have a life now and I have a life into to eternity with my heavenly Father, my Savior of the world. Of, the, of, the, of my Savior, Jesus Christ. And everything changed. But then struggles came as a Christian. The world started creeping back in. Your fleshly desires crept back in. Darkness seemed to come back after you again. And you struggled as a Christian life. Well, Paul is saying to the believers in Colossae, and he says to us today as we read the scriptures, what we need to do is come back to the foundation of the supremacy of Christ. Know that he is preeminent. He is superior over everything and anything that this world or your flesh has to offer. And it will bring you back to this foundation, this grounding in your life, and give you sure footing of what steadfastness of your walk as a Christian. Because Jesus Christ is preeminent in salvation. There is no other way to be saved. There is no other way to be redeemed and have the forgiveness of sins. And once you realize that, and if you've never realized that, today's the day of your salvation. Today's the day you're hearing for the first time that Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved and to be forgiven of your sins. There is no other way. No other religion or rituals can save you. Only a personal relationship in Jesus, with Jesus Christ. No other person can redeem us, forgive us, transfer us out of Satan's kingdom into God's kingdom. And do, a whole, and do that based on grace and not through some kind of works that has never worked. The phrase, through his blood that we will see, reminds us of the cost of our salvation. Remember that Moses and the Israelites, they shed blood by an animal's blood, a lamb's blood, to be delivered from Egypt, to have their sins temporarily covered. But Jesus' blood, his blood was shed to deliver us from our sin for eternity. Not just a covering, but a complete wiping away of all of our sin. And we learned last week in verse 7 that redemption and forgiveness go together. The word translated forgiveness means to be send away or to cancel a debt as Christ has not only set us free and transferred us to this new kingdom in God, this heavenly abound approach, but he has canceled or wiped clean every debt of sin that you and I have or had or will have so that we cannot be enslaved any longer in this darkness of sin that Satan cannot find anything in the files that will indict us to hell for for eternity because as they go to the files and they look at the files and they see what they could get on you to indict you. There's nothing new. We see it played out in the news today. You don't have to. You can just, people are constantly looking to see what they can get on you. 
Satan's constantly looking. What can I get on you to accuse you and to, to bring you down? So that, you know, Look at what you've done in the past. Look at what you've done. Well, guess what? Your sin's been wiped clean. They go to any file they want to. They look in there and they see, see nothing but completely white, empty paper. There's nothing there. They can't use it against you in the court of law or nothing. God has sent his only begotten son and his blood on the cross took away all of your sins for those who believe. You've been set free. So here Paul in this letter is appealing to, pleading to, and petitioning to these Colossians here by the spiritual awareness of who God is. And that his redemptive work is in their lives, doing worked in their lives and continue to work in their lives to bring them into eternity with him. And as we look at these verses today here, we're going to see seven characteristic features of Christ that you and I must know and understand and be foundational upon. Seven key characteristics, and we will go through each of those one by one. In verse 15 of chapter 1, we say, we see he is the image of the invisible God. So here he says he is. Paul is saying he is. Jesus is. He starts off by thanking the Father of his plans of redemption by using, uh, uh, that we saw back in, I think, in verse 12 of chapter 1 there. Let's see there. Giving thanks to the Father who had qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. So he started off by thanking the Father. Now he's, he's going to get into who Jesus is and the foundation that is based upon. But he couldn't do that without also thinking of what Jesus has done, the Redeemer, in his life and in their life there in Colossae. And he says here, he is the image of the invisible God. The word image here in the Greek is icon, which is this expressed image of God. It's like you looking into the mirror and you see your image in the mirror. Do you look at that image and say, that's not me? <laughs> maybe some mornings you say that, that doesn't look like me. You know, you're, you're, you're a mess in the morning maybe and you go, I don't know who that is in the mirror, but that's not me. But the reality is once you snap and you get out of it and you come awake, you realize, yes, that is your image in the mirror that you're looking at. That's, there's no question that's who you are. If you take a coin, you see a what? An image embossed, or em, 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 what's the word? Embossed, thank you. Embossed into the coin. You look at the image, you know what, who that image is. Jesus Christ, right here, Paul says, is the image of the invisible God. And it's the strongest word. Icon is the strongest word in the Greek language to express that there is not a likeness, but it is God. When Jesus looks in the mirror, he's looking at God. He is God. There's not a question there. Yes, other false religious, false teachers will come in and say that it, Jesus is not God. But that's not true. It's false teaching. And that's what was creeping in into the Colossae church as well. But Paul used the word image here to make it clear. That it means to an exact representation or revelation of who God is in the flesh. 
John 14, 9 says, Jesus said, I have, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? He says, you're staring at the Father. I am God in the flesh. The invisible God now made visible in front of man and woman. So you could see not only the nature, the essence, but the completeness, the fullness, as we will see as we continue to read the scriptures here. But Jesus has revealed him, revealed the Father to us. We see that in John 1.18. But nature, of course, reveals the existence, the power, the wisdom of God as we continue. But he adds to here at the end of verse 15, not only is he the image of the invisible God, but Jesus is also the firstborn over all creation. So that's the second characteristic. The Greek word here for firstborn is protokos, and it describes not only priority in time, but also supremacy in ranking. So as Paul used it here, he probably had both in mind because Jesus being before all created things, but he also, Jesus is the supremely different in order and it was created in that same way. So what he is, is Jesus is not created, he is God. He has always existed. He was before anybody else. And his ranking or superiority is his number one in ranking, meaning there is no one higher and greater than God himself in Jesus Christ. So he's the firstborn. It's, we see it also not only in first, uh, Colossians 1.18, but we also see the same word, the same Greek word in Romans 8.29, Hebrews 6, and Revelation 5. Now, many people will say, and a lot of false religions will sit there and look at this and say, firstborn, oh, see, I told you he was created. Or he or they wouldn't have used that. But they obviously didn't, they didn't study the language. But if they look at that, even know Solomon, if you remember, Solomon was referenced in Psalm 89, 27 as the firstborn. But we know that Solomon was not David's first son. But he was... In rank and priority, God moves Solomon to be a rank order ahead and above all the other brothers. We see this happens all the time in the firstborn of all creation, meaning or prior to creation. But we see that it's a rank order or supremacy or of, of importance that Paul is writing to, to these believers. He is a perfect re resemblance, a perfect representation of God the Father in person. And verse 16, For because by him all things were created. So we see the third characteristic. That are in heaven and that are on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, in, or meaning for him or into him. So we see here this third characteristic. There is no doubt that Jesus is the author of all creation. Not only is he God, but he also he is the creator. So we see here that before, for, or in, uh, in the Greek language, because of him, all things were created. Because of Jesus Christ, all things were created. 
He beholds, he has the wonder, he's the glory. He's the one that created that we worship and honor him all the more because he is a creator. And some people say, well, did he create what? What did he create? Well, he get, Paul gives it very specific. He created all everything in heaven, everything in earth, everything that's visible, invisible. He even goes as far as, because the false teachers were coming in at those days, teaching about uh, and misrepresenting who angels are. And he was saying angels are somehow become mediators between God and man. So Paul's addressing here. No, no, Jesus is over the thrones, the dominions, the principalities, the powers. This ranking of angel or hierarchy of angels. That's what that is. There's different rankings of angels. And so they were teaching how these angels somehow become mediators. No, Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. But Paul is saying here, Jesus is the, is the creator. He's created everything that is in heaven and is in, in earth, visible, non-visible. Doesn't mean, even the angels, everything he has created. No wonder why the winds and the waves obey Jesus when he says to, to be still. Or why disease and death flee from him, for he is the master of all. 1 John 1.3 says, all things were made by him. Now as we demonstrate, and we see as we continue in this letter, we'll see this theme around this, uh, this, this um, Colossian heresy that was going on with these false teachers, bringing back this this. this this false teaching around the, uh, the importance of or emphasis of or somehow the mediator of angels between God and man. And Paul will continue to address that more specifically in the, in the letter. Now, verse 17, he says, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now, there's a, a um, centuries after Paul's uh, left, there was a false teacher by the name of Arius uh, that claimed that Jesus was not truly God and that there was a time when he did not exist. But Paul makes it very clear here that Jesus is before all things. He's always existed. That in, in him all things cons, uh, cons, uh, consist and the fact that he holds all things together is what he's saying here. If you ever seen two magnets, or if you understand uh, electrons and protons and the positives and negatives, and if you ever go through a science course and you say, how do you all these positive stay together even though they're attracting and the force is going out like an a, atomic bomb or an atom exploding? Because that's exactly what happens. It's contained and they mess with it, cause it, it to not to be contained, and it causes the explosion that we saw uh, in many uh, through atomic bombs. But they go to this class and they see this science class and they go through this and this guy takes this group through the atomic laboratory and he explains all the matter and it composed of rapidly moving electronic particles and, and the tourists studied the models of these molecules and amazed how all of this, when you really study it with the technology, there's so much space within and among these molecules. But during the question period, one visitor says, is this the way matter works? What holds it 
you know, it moves around and it's, it's compo- these two positive, like two magnets where you try to force them together, they, they oppose each other. But when you put a positive and negative, they immediately attract together. So they say, well, how do they keep it all together? And they're asking the scientists, that's how it all works, but how does it all stay together? And of course, the scientists can't explain how it stays together. But you and I, knowing the word of God, knows how it stays together. Because God, Jesus himself, created it and he holds it all together. He he created it before things and he also, all things were consistent or consist in him. He holds it all together. And one day, this as we see the scriptures, he's going to start taking his hands off of things and things that have been perfectly in line and going, he uses that to bring change in this world. And he's just going to start taking his hands off and allowing things to naturally come apart. But we see here, he keeps it together for his purpose. So Christ is not only the one through whom all things came to be, but also the one by whom they continue to exist. Two verses, John 1.3, through him all things were made, and Hebrews 1.2, though whom the Father made the universe. Do you believe it? Do you believe he is God in the flesh, and do you believe he's the creator of the universe? If you don't believe that, You need to because the Bible tells us so. The authority of the word of God says so. Do you believe it? By faith, do you believe who Jesus says he who he is? Now, as we continue here, we see in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. So we see the fourth characteristic of who Jesus is. He is the head of the body of the church who is in the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, which is the fifth characteristic you need to take note in the scripture. He is the firstborn from the dead, and that in all things he may have the preeminence. Verse 18 is the key theme verse of the entire letter, the preeminence of God, of who Jesus Christ is. Now in the very beginning here, number four characteristic, the head of the body of the the church is, describes Jesus' relationship to the church, you and I. He is the head. He is the source of life. So if you look at a, at a river, you have to ask yourself at times, where is the beginning or the head of that river or the source of the river of that, of that river that you see? If you trace it back, you will find the head of that river or the source of that water. Jesus is the head of the church. The question is, is when you look at the body of believers together, like you and I, can we, they, anyone outside coming in see that the source of this body is Jesus Christ? Is he the living source? Is he the one that's preeminent? Is he the supremacy of the gathering of the gather of you and I as believers? Because the church is, Jesus is the head of the church. He should be. If he's not, then you have to question that church. 
Because Jesus is, is the only way. The scripture's clear, as Paul says. He is the way here as being the head of the body, the church. So the reference here is the, the invisible church, you and I, right? Into which all believers are baptized by the Holy Spirit by the moment they became, became and believed in Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Once you believed, once you heard and you believe who Jesus Christ is, you were baptized in by the Spirit of Christ and came inside you and you became part of this big invisible church. This work of the Spirit of God began on the day of Pentecost, we see in Acts 1.5. And we see it a few other times in Acts 2 and Acts 11. And it is a special body in which there is neither Jew nor Gentile. We see that in, in uh, Galatians 3.28. We're all one, equal. There is no separation between Jews and Gentiles. We're all one. We're a child of God in this church. But a whole new creation of God that God created called the church. We see that in Ephesians 2.15. And the church is a mystery. Which, has, which was not made known to man in other generations until we see it made known here at, at Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection. And we see that in Ephesians 3.4.5 and Romans 16. 25 and 26 in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, when we get to that. So not only is he the head of the body, the church, but that in all things he may have the preeminence or supremacy. So Christ is given first place over all creation. If he's given... First place, the ranking, the supremacy, the over everything, everyone. The question is, do you allow him to do that over your life? On a daily basis. Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by, into eternity. The, that's the question. If he's preeminent, if he's supreme, why do we not allow him to be that in our lives? He's our Savior. He's our Creator. He's the head of the church. I'm not head of the church. There's no hierarchical religious people ahead of the church. The Pope's not ahead of the church. Peter's, St. Peter's not ahead of the church. None of the people that a lot of religions and rituals try to make the head of the church is not head of the church. There's only one source of the, of the church, and that is our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Creator. And once you and I understand that, it makes all the difference in regards to your walk with Christ. Because what you'll see and what I watch and is so grieving is that people put someone, the pastor or some religious figure, ahead of the church. And when something doesn't go right, what, what happens to their walk with Christ? It affects them tremendously. Story after story of people, oh, you don't understand, Pastor, what happened at the church, and this happened, and this happened, and I haven't gone to church in 20 years, and it's the first time I've been back. That's so grieving to me. 
Because what's happened is people have put the pastor or some group of religious people or some denomination or something in place of Jesus Christ of being ahead of the church. And what happens is when they're, 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 they fall, they sin, they do something that's not right, not good, they hurt you, they, whatever it is, fill in the blank. You walk away from a relationship of who Jesus Christ is. He's the foundation of your faith. Not a building. Not a person. Not a family member. But Jesus only. But notice so far in the characteristics that we've seen so far. It addresses he is the Savior. It talks about who he is to lost sinners. To you and I at one point in time. We were lost sinners. Darkness, living life, so contrary to things of God. But he's a Savior. He wants to save. That's why he came. Not only that, do you notice that he's a creator? That means he has a relationship with the universe. He created it. He's in control of it. Nothing passes without him knowing it. Notice the fact that he's the head of the church. That means it's his relationship with you as believers, as a child of God. That it's intimate. It's personal. He watches you. He hears you. He loves you. That's our foundation of our, our faith in, in, in Christ. And so as he continues here, we also have this relationship as he brings forth in verse 19, that relationship of, with the God the Father. He says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. So the sixth characteristic is right here, that the, in him, Jesus Christ, is all the fullness that dwells. Fullness, the word fullness translates in the Greek here as uh, pleroma, which means, was really just a, another way of saying that Jesus is truly God in the fullness, completeness. There's nothing to add or delete from who Jesus Christ is in God. This word fullness is a recognized kind of a theological term that's brings, that marks a totality of divine powers or divine attributes of God. That's what it's speaking of, a fullness here in the Greek language. Not only the fullness speaks of completeness or totality of divine powers and attributes, but the word should dwell, the word dwell, that Greek word there as well, speaks to uh, not a temporary dwelling, um, not a, oh, the, the fullness of God will be there maybe for a little while. We're not sure how long that God will hang around. But it's, dwell means a complete or permanent placement. So we read this, he says, for it pleased God that God took the Holy, the, the Son, the, 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 his only Son, and 
gave him completeness or fullness. He was, he was fully God, and he placed dwell permanently, not temporarily, in that position of being over all or supremacy. Paul later, uh, later writes here, in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form in chapter 2, verse 9. But the fullness has been put into Jesus Christ. The fullness is in him. Not in some church, not in, the, in a priesthood, not in a building, not in a sacrament, not into saints, not into the method or a program, but only in Jesus Christ himself. And as a distribu distribution point, he pours out his life in and through you in the church. And so that those who want more of Christ, they want a deeper relationship with God. That we can find that deeper relationship with God in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So why wouldn't we want to talk to him daily? Why would we not want to read the word daily? And I'm going to take you right back to John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So he's the word, logos. Why do we not desire, or if you have and want to go deeper in your relationship with God, you will have a deeper desire to read the word of God. That's how he speaks to you and I. That's how he gives us wisdom and reveals what we should do or not to do. How he guides us in our past and our decision making. Paul is saying to these believers, go deeper. Go deeper in knowing who your savior, your creator, your, the head of the church, the source of the church. Why do you not go back to the living water? The source for your life. If you're dry, Come to him. If you're weak, come to him. If you're dirty, come to him. If you're lost, come to him. If you're confused, come to him. If you're lonely, come to him. Fill in the blank, my brothers and sisters. What is it that you're saying to yourself in private, in yourself, or right now? God, Jesus himself, is saying, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you what? More work to do? No. I'll give you rest. You can find rest. It's so important you understand this with these words. 
Paul is saying to the believers in Colossae, because they're in turmoil. They have people coming in trying to divide and conquer and really ruin and impact their lives. Paul saying, come. Because in verse 20, he says, by him to reconcile all things to himself. Jesus has come to recognize all, uh, reconcile all things to him. And by him, that's number seven, where he reconciles all things to himself. He's the reconciler. That's number seven, the seventh characteristic. It's by him, for him, <laughs> by him, whether things are on earth or on things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So the seven characteristics, the seventh one here, is the reconciler of all things. Jesus' atoning work is full and broad, encapsulates all. He died for all people. This is not some endorsement for universalism. But those who believe by faith, as he says, through the blood of the cross. But again, notice, in the scripture he says, notice that the peace was made. We don't, have, we, we don't make our own peace with God. You heard that term, have you, made, have, you, have you made peace with God yet? You realize you're about to die, Dad. Do you, have you made peace with God yet? No, Jesus made peace for us through his work on the cross. The question is, have you given your life, Dad, to Jesus Christ by faith for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you believe? And if you do, then he gives you the peace. You've been reconciled with him. There's no distance. There's no, he loves you. And it's through Christ God will reconcile to himself all things. The phrase all things is, is limited. Notice, is limited to good angels and redeemed people. Because since only, he says, he redeems things on the earth and the things in heaven. He does not mention anything about redeeming anything under the earth. And you go back to Philippians 2.10, are not reconciled. But those things on the earth and those in heaven are reconciled, not under the earth. It's important to note that people are reconciled to God, to him, to himself. Not that God is reconciled to people, but for mankind has left God and didn't want anything to do with God and was pushing God away and, they, and needs to be brought back to him. So he calls on their name. He, he reaches out to him. He's the one reaching the hand out. It's just he's trying constantly to get your attention to bring you back and call you to follow him. Constantly trying to reconcile. blood on the cross is like some churches and some religious sects they, they make the blood on the cross some superstitious matter or or magical potion like did you get did you get the sprinkling of the blood on you today did you go past and get sprinkled on you know like that water is like blood of christ being sprinkled on you and they do all kinds of things to get emotions from the people 
And some people believe literally what they do is literally the blood of Jesus was, it needs to be sprinkled on you to be saved and cleansed. <laughs> you really ponder on that kind of concept. Think about the Roman guards who were right there when they were spearing him and putting the crown of thorns in his head and the blood was spurting all over him. They should have been the most saved person you ever met. blood of the cross speaks to us of the real physical death that Jesus Christ did in our place on our behalf. This literal death in our place, the literal judgment he bore on our behalf is what saves us. There is no other way. In verse 21, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. So here Paul is taking that, that theme on reconciliation. He's going to expand it for a few more verses here for us today. And he says reconciliation is, is necessary. Why? Because people are alienated. The, the word here is, means cut off or estranged to God. Cut off from God because of sin. From life, from God, it's, they're alienated. That's what we were before we came to Christ. We were alienated, cut off from the life of God and the things of God and, and who he is and what he is. Before conversion, the Colossian believers were also enemies or hostile to God in their minds, it says, as well as their behavior internally and externally. And that speaks to you and I when we, before coming to Christ, mentally we're enemies of God. We thought of things that would go, go completely contrary to the things of God. We didn't want anything to hear about the God. We didn't want to hear about the Bible. We didn't want to see the cross. We did all kinds of things. As a matter of fact, it translated what was in our hearts from our minds. It actually comes out, as Paul says here, and it's, it comes out and manifests itself so people can see the wicked works. did the drugs, did the drunkenness, did the pornography, did the sex, did this, did this. Fill in the blank, whatever it is, that wicked work that came out, it started with your mind. It settles in the heart because sin begins in the heart, we see in Matthew 5, verses 27, 28. And what's in your heart will come out of what comes out of your mouth and what comes out of your actions or your works or your sinful deeds. We commit sin because of our inward hostility against the things of God. But once you're a believer, you're no longer alienated, cut off from God and the life of God. You're no longer an enemy of God. You're a child of God. And that means you've been reconciled. It says, yet now he has reconciled. Get those key words at the end of verse 21. God answered the problem of alienation. What is it? 
reconciliation. How did he reconcile? By him going to the cross and dying for you. So he is reconciled. Now, yet now he has reconciled. Past tense. He has reconciled you. As a believer, God, you've been reconciled. He, there's no more sin on the papers of, of, of everything writing down of what you've done wrong. It's all clean. It's all gone. It's wiped away. So why do you dwell on your past? Why do you fear the future? Why don't you rest in what God has already done? He didn't just meet us halfway and say, let's make a deal here. I'll save you from the flames of hell if you really work really, 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 really hard for me and do, 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 and then I'll add it all up and maybe you've worked hard enough and stayed away from the bad things long enough, then I might love you and I might just take you to heaven. No, that's not the deal here. He says, I know you have no desire for me, not an ounce of desire to know me or want me or anything to do with me, but I love you so much because I created you for a relationship and I'm going to the cross and I'm going to spew my blood out for you to wipe away your sins. And if you will believe in me, put your faith in me and follow me, you will be forgiven. It doesn't take any work. It doesn't take any do's and don't do's. It's all by his grace. You and I get to rest in his grace. Rest in his complete finished work on the cross. That's why we trust him. Because you and I fall short all the time. But he's, he's faithful. He's never going to fall short. He's completed it. That's why in verse 22, he's in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So why did he go to the cross? Why did he spew his blood out on that cross for you? To bore your sin on his shoulders? Why? Because we see it right here. To present you holy to the Heavenly Father. To present you blameless. To present you above reproach in his sight. That's the, re that's the result of reconciling you to him. To bring, him. to bring you back to him. Is now you're able to be presented holy. To be presented blameless. To be presented above reproach in his sight. Together, these, this just shows how Jesus we are so pure and can't even justly be accused for any impurity. It's been wiped clean, as white as snow. Amazing, amazing grace. A desire to be saved. Do you know what that means? It means a desire to be made holy, blameless, and above reproach. Next time you're having a conversation with someone, you do not believe they're saved. I don't want anything to do with the God. I don't want you to talk about God. I I, that's good for you, but not for me. Ask them. 
Do you believe there's something in your life that is just, don't, you don't have to use the word holy. Use the words, is there something in your life that just, just absolutely just makes you sick to your stomach that you do? You wish you couldn't, didn't have to do it? How about, if, are, you, are you fed up with people constantly blaming you like you, you're just falling short and haven't measured up to their expectations? How about, how about they don't trust you? Happens a lot in families. You go away, you go to college, you go to the military, you go do your thing, you're growing up, you're mature, and you've kind of grown out of those kind of childish things you did in your high school days and your early 20s, and you're grown up, now you're married, you have kids. I mean, come on, you're somewhat growing up, somewhat mature. But when you go back home, what happens? People that know you, your family, still look at you like you're still that kid that drinks and parties because that's what your buddies remember you as last. You're not above approach anymore. You're still down in the trenches where they're still at home still doing. But being a child of God, he lifts you all that up and people look at your life and say you're holy. God sees you holy. He sees you blameless. He sees you above reproach. Your Heavenly Father doesn't look at you and say, you're really still messed up. You're probably just like you have always were when you were growing up. Mounting to nothing. No purpose. Wasting the, just a slugger. No. That's not how your Heavenly Father sees you. He sees you today sitting in this chair, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? You may not feel like it, but go beyond the feelings and trust with all of your heart of what God says about you. And find your life foundationally settled on the supremacy of Christ in your life. It will make a tremendous difference in your walk on a daily basis as a Christian. And then Paul says here, in, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. I believe in the gospel so much, I became a slave to sharing and spreading the gospel to wherever God allows me to. What's your purpose in life, Paul? I'm a slave to share the gospel with everybody and anybody that God allows me to. That's his passion. He understood his purpose as a child of God. And he says, you've been reconciled, sinners. You're no longer sinners. You have been Sinners saved by grace. And this, reconcil this reconciliation of sinners to God by Christ's physical body, death on the cross that made it complete. He says, you know, and you even see in 1 John 4, 2, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to be able to come to do this work on the cross for you. 
to redeem mankind. And he says to these believers, and he says it to you and I today, there is people and enemies and, and demonic forces that want to bring you down. And he's saying to those believers, I know these false teachers are coming after you. I know the flesh and division within the church is happening there in Colossae. But I want to encourage you to stay focused on the faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Keep your eyes on Him. Be grounded in your relationship of who He is and what He's done for you. Be steadfast. Do not allow these false teachers to sway you. Do not allow your flesh to dominate. Do not allow the worldly things to come in again. Do not allow the past to, to come haunt you again. Do not allow the fear of, the, of failure in the future to come and paralyze you. No. Don't allow it. You don't have to because you are your relationship with Jesus gives you that completeness that you need. He's not sitting there going, now you need to stay focused on this and keep abiding or you're going to lose your salvation. He's not saying that. He's actually very encouraged the fact that these people are continuing to walk with God, continuing to keep their eyes. But the challenge is with them and with us today. You get saved. You're on fire. You believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. You've put your complete trust in him that you are saved and going to heaven. Praise the Lord. You get excited, you will tell everybody around you, and they're telling you, what are you talking about? I don't know what I'm talking about either completely, but I'm telling you that Jesus is the way. And it didn't stop you. And then you get settled in your walk. And then all of a sudden the enemy says, okay, I think they're finally kind of, their hyperness here is kind of calming down. Let's, let's just put a few, let's just come at them through their workplace, get them really, really busy at work. And then let's, let's cause a little division between a husband and wife over here. Oh, let's add children and let, them get, let some sickness come into the household a little bit. And then let's have the people and the neighbors start coming against. And let's this and this. And all of a sudden, your flesh starts rearing up. You know, I don't feel like I'm, I'm just always at church and I'm always doing this for God. And I think I'm losing out. Did you, did you see Facebook? I'm, I'm not doing what those... My friends are doing, they're, it seems like they're on vacation 362 days a year. And we're never going on vacation. Oh, look at their house. Everything's perfect. And they're like, oh, they got, we don't have that. Their kids are never sick. Our kids are always sick because you're always at church and you should be here. I mean, all these kinds of crazy things happen because the world tries to get into your life again. That you kicked out. The things of the flesh are creeping back to you. You haven't you used to repel and you'll get sick to your stomach even thinking about going back to that life. Going back like a going back to like a dog to its vomit. It, it used to repel you to go back to that sin. But you've allowed your old friends to come back and they do it, and everything seems to doesn't seem as bad as it used to be. But let me tell you, I'm gonna tell as frank and as possible as I can to you. You have lost your absolute mind to think your old life was perfect and good. So many times we get saved, we come out of it, and after a period of time, we go, you know, my life wasn't that bad. 
You vomited all over yourself after every time you were out drinking. What do you mean that was good? You used to scream and yell and just lose and, and punch holes in the wall. What do you mean you had a good life back in those days before Christ? Your mind was so deviated with all kinds of junk that you've been watching on porn of it, and you, oh, it wasn't that bad? Are you kidding me? Sometimes we have to be reminded of what God has saved us from to remind us of why we need him so much more. Don't allow the, your, your mind to go in some place where it just it, it brings down how horrible our sin was that we lived in and we enjoyed it at the time. You must hate your sin. It should still turn your stomach and sicken your stomach to think that you used to do that. And it should propel you for a passion for another person who is, who is in bondage to that sin and go and tell them there's a, there's a different way. You don't have to be in bondage. You can be set free and be reconciled to God because right now you're alienated, you're an enemy of God, and that is not good for you. It should propel us to be in faith and grounded and steadfast and not move away from the hope of the gospel. If some false teacher comes in and says, Jesus, yes, died for you on the cross, but you also have to do these ritual things. You have to have, you only listen to certain music. You have to dress a certain way. You have to, have to come to church only on certain days and stuff. Get, stop it. Stop listening to that junk. Help them to understand the simplicity and understand them and bring them back to the word of God and teach them the truth because they've been deceived. That's what Paul is saying here because you've heard it and you've heard it preached. And everywhere it's, it's not like that Paul is saying here, he went all over the entire, from of everywhere on earth to, to preach, but he's saying, I started down the path of becoming a minister of the gospel and God is doing a work in and through me and he wants to do the same thing in you because Paul understood the supremacy of Christ. There was no one, nothing more important than Jesus Christ in his life. None. Is it yours today? Is it yours is he number one truly supremacy, preeminent in your life? Or has the world, or flesh, or even worse, yourself, become number one again in your life? It's all about you. I pray it's not, because you're the most miserable person. And you don't even know it, probably. But God says, Follow me. Come to me. And he'll give you what? 